Hello and welcome. My name is Fran Stoddard, your host today. The Orton Family Foundation is pleased to offer this event on getting young people involved in community leadership for fresh perspectives and new energy. On these Heart and Soul Talks, we often feature stories and insights from Community Heart and Soul, a community development model that builds stronger, healthier, and more economically vibrant small cities and towns. Joining us today are youth advocates and a youth leader. They'll share how to authentically involve the next generation in local decision-making. I'd like to welcome Laura Furr, Program Manager for Justice Reform and Youth Engagement with the National League of Cities. Hi, Laura. It's great that you bring this national perspective to the table. Hi, Fran. Happy to be here today. Great. And welcome, um, I hope, is, is Blair Rice on the line yet? Not quite yet, but we expect him any minute. There might be, he's out in Colorado, so there might be a time difference um, issue there. So I also want to welcome Lee Crone. He is the Senior Planner with the Chittenden County Regional Planning Commission of Vermont and the forming, former Planning Director for the Town of Manchester, Vermont, for over 24 years. Welcome, Lee. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So before we get on to our guest stories, I'll cover just a few logistics. Each speaker will offer brief presentations, and then we'll have time for your questions. Thanks to the many who have already sent in questions with your registration. We have about 200 registrants for our call today from across North America and beyond, so we'll be muting our listeners to get as clean an audio signal as possible. In your email is a link to our Google document for note-taking, comments, and questions. Orton's Caitlin Davison will be taking notes that she will proofread and refine after the call, providing a great resource for you in the future. You can and we encourage you to add your own comments or questions to the document in real time in the edit mode. However, since the edit mode in Google Docs is limited to 50 contributors at a time, um, if you are not active in the document, please return to the view-only mode to allow others to contribute. We also leave this document up after the call for your continued input and reference. You can also tweet us uh, with your question or follow along with our Twitter feed at, at Orton Foundation. In a few days, we will send links to the call notes and the recording to all registrants. If you're having any trouble with the Google Docs during the call, just try to, the refresh icon and that should do it. If you're having any other technical issues, you can email Caitlin Davison at cdavison at orton.org. Thanks so much. So now on to our guests. Laura Furr is the Program Manager for Justice Reform and Youth Engagement for the National League of Cities. Laura helps municipal leaders take action on behalf of children, youth, and families in their communities. She assists cities in establishing authentic systems for youth engagement through initiatives such as youth councils, juvenile justice reform, and participatory budgeting. Prior to joining the National League of Cities, Laura was the Interim Executive Director and Senior Director of Youth Justice Initiatives at Common Law in Action, Inc., a nonprofit that engages youth as active citizens, critical thinkers, and advocates for positive change in Maryland. Laura, thank you so much for being here again, and go ahead with your overview. Yeah, thank you, Fran. I'm very excited to be here and talk with all of you today. Um, so at the National League of Cities, we focus, um, as our name suggests, on opportunities for cities and city leaders to uh, improve how they do their jobs. So we are, uh, when we're talking about youth civic engagement, we very much focus on opportunities for city governments, municipal governments to do that. We see a number of different ways for cities to do that, and one of the things that we really focus on is really supporting them to build authentic youth civic engagement. Um, we want to make sure that youth are not um, sort of tokens on uh, in civic engagement opportunities, that they're um, not just there to be pretty faces, but that they really have an authentic seat at the table and a voice at the table. Um, and so uh, one of the documents that we have a link to, I think, in the Google document um, is our Authentic Youth Civic Engagement Guide. Um, and I would encourage anyone who's uh, exploring developing uh, youth civic engagement opportunities to take a look at that guide for some tools and a lot more information about how to make sure that that's really authentic. 
Um, we're also going to be releasing some documents coming up soon, um, which will talk very concretely on how-tos about uh, a number of the opportunities that I'm going to discuss today. So, you know, our main focus um, that we see city leaders using to pull in youth voice and, and youth civic engagement is youth councils. Um, they take different forms. Uh, sometimes they are modeled after city councils. Sometimes they are mayors, youth advisory boards, or similar kinds of setups. Um, so uh, we, we see a lot of those uh, in cities across the country, small cities, large cities, um, tiny, tiny cities and towns, um, and we see uh, them very widely in sort of their structure, their setup, the number of youth engaged. Um, we just recently did a survey. We found that uh, youth councils across the country engage anywhere from five young people to 200 young people, um, and that they have, you know, very varying degrees of involvement in city governance. Um, some of the things that we've seen uh, really are best practices in the um, in authentic youth civic engagement uh, is three things um, that I'm going to talk about there. You know, there are other uh, key pieces here, but I want to highlight three in particular. Um, so one is really a built-in shared leadership for the young people. Um, youth should have a direct connection to a governing body, whether that's the city council, um, a mayor, um, or some other sort of governing um, body within the city and that they have explicit power within the, the development of policies and practices related especially to young people. Um, one model that uh, we like to talk about in terms of this is the San Francisco Youth Commission. Um, the city's charter expressly uh, connects that commission to the city council and requires that the city council actually share um, examples of, or not examples, but actual legislation that would impact youth with that youth council for their review and comment. Um, and that youth council creates its own pieces of legislation that it submits to the council for review um, and possible passage. Um, a key here is to, to really avoid tokenism. Tokenism is when uh, young people are at the table as token young people. Um, they are there, but they don't really have a voice or power. Um, and one of the, the greatest ways that we find uh, to recruit and retain young people and actually have youth who you currently have in your work um, do your future recruit recruiting for you is to really do that, to make it matter for the young people involved in, uh, in the engagement, really give them a voice and a power at the table that they can see. Um, we also think it's really important to prepare youth to succeed, you know, um, making sure that things are realistic for them. Um, does it meet during school hours? That's going to make it hard for them to participate. Is it a place that they can get to without a car, without being able to drive? Do you provide them a stipend? Do you give them food and training? Um, and this, this training piece is key because youth are not experts at sitting in meetings and contributing in professional environments like we are. They're experts at sitting in classrooms and writing papers and contributing in their classrooms. So it's a different structure and we need to prepare them to succeed in that structure. Um, one of the ways also there is to really support youth adult partnerships with adults who are dedicated and trained to support youth voice. Make sure that there are staff available for the young people who are, whose job it is is to support their authentic engagement. And really keep it fun. You know, I mean, that, that's this, this is a key part of preparing youth to succeed because adolescents are, uh, you know, developmentally hardwired to seek fun and reward. Um, if your engagement is not fun, they're not going to return for it. Um, and ensure that you have diverse youth voices. Youth are experts in their own experiences. We want them to share their own experiences. And a young person who's never been homeless can't speak to that about other young people. Um, we want to avoid things that limit authentic youth civic engagement. So some things that youth have told us they keep them from joining is because they believe their voice wouldn't be heard. They don't have support, support from their parents or guardians to participate, and they just generally don't think youth will take them seriously. And it's true that oftentimes adults don't take young people seriously. Um, you know, we've done, uh, you know, some quick uh, looks on the Internet about uh, things like lowering voting age or getting youth engaged. We'll, uh, we'll you'll find some quotes from adults like high school kids have enough on their minds, um, really dismissing their ability to, to weigh in in a, in a weighty fashion. Um, but the number one reason why kids don't participate is because no one asked them. Um, and so really making sure that that, that opportunity is created there. Um, 
And a really other key point, uh, regardless of the type of engagement that you're doing, is to bring youth to the table because they add value, not because it's good for them. Uh, the benefits of youth engagement and including youth in public policy um, run the gamut. You know, we're gonna, you're going to see budget savings and, and revenue generation because you're actually putting the funds towards things that are needed. Um, towards things that are going to be used. You're not going to have a rec center that nobody uses because it's in the wrong neighborhood. Uh, increased support for city initiatives. You're going to have buy-in from youth and their families. And you're going to have improved policies um, and programs for young people. Again, things that the young people actually want and will use. And you're going to also have uh, more of a reputation and identification as a youth-friendly community. Um, and I am going to leave it there. I think I'll probably approach uh, some of the other opportunities for um, youth civic engagement uh, in answer to a couple of the questions. I think we'll get into it there. Okay. Fantastic. That really covers a lot of ground, Laura. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to turn this over right now to Lee Crone. He is a senior planner with the Chittenden County Regional Planning Commission in Vermont. And prior to joining that commission, Lee served as a planning director, among many other roles, for the town of Manchester for over 24 years. His work to engage youth has named, was named the 2009 Project of the Year for the uh, Vermont Planners Association. Lee serves on the Vermont Urban and Community Forest Council and as the NECAPA, that's the Northern New England uh, Planners Association, Assistant Professional Development Officer for Vermont. He is a past president of the Vermont Planners Association and was a founding member and longtime chair of the Manchester Community Land Trust. His current work in involves land use and emergency management planning, as well as direct assistance to municipalities. Lee is also a firefighter and an award-winning professional photographer, a skier, biker, runner, and many other things. Lee, are, we are so thrilled to have you here, especially since you were involved in one of Orton's earliest projects with youth in Manchester. Go ahead. Thank you, and thanks to everybody who's on the line here. It's wonderful to have such interest in this. Uh, yeah, just a big, brief context. We had worked with Orton Foundation facilitating an extended community dialogue over a proposed wind turbine project on a mountain at the edge of town. And when we got together and talked about that after the process was complete, we realized that the voice that was missing in that whole conversation were the young folks whose future we were discussing. So we approached the local high school to see what did we miss and how did we miss that. It turned out the students had been talking about this wind turbine thing quite a bit, but we didn't tap into that. So we met with some of the students, met with some of the faculty. Long story short, the students themselves said, we want more of a voice in community affairs. How can that happen? So we coached the students and actually allowed them to make a presentation to the Manchester Select Board where they were asking for a voice in town affairs and could they become members of all the municipal boards. And I was thrilled to work in a community that was so supportive in that manner and the Select Board was very enthusiastic to a person, uh, looked to me because I'd been involved in this project and worked with most of the town boards and they said, Lee, go meet with all the boards, let's make this happen. And every single town board enthusiastically embraced the idea. So students went through the same application process that everyone else does. Uh, we appointed two students to each town board and launched this thing. Uh, some of the important aspects that we found, just like Laura mentioned, there needs to be a focus on supporting the students in this. It's ironic that when we appoint adults to boards, we think they bring with that all the skills they automatically need to know to be a productive member. And I think we all know that doesn't always work that way. So it was important to have a real strong base of support to work with the students to help them understand the whole context of municipal government and where each board fit into that. We also wanted to have two students on each board so that they had a sense of peer support and they weren't just feeling like they were alone as a young person in this sea of adults and what's this all about. We also wanted two students on each board because we were looking at it from a sense of succession planning, that if we could somehow facilitate this so that we had an underclassman and an upperclassman on each board, 
then as the upperclassmen graduated, the younger student could kind of rise up to that peer leadership role and help the next younger student come along for the ride. And that worked really well. Um, it was a fascinating exercise. What helped it work more than anything was that the adults genuinely wanted to hear the students' insights. And in more than one occasion, students helped sway the outcome of a decision that might have been made because they were able to provide a strong argument with supporting evidence, just like you'd hope anyone would. Sometimes the students were better prepared than the adults, not always. Another key piece of it was that the high school had a community service requirement, and clearly this more than satisfied that, and they earned credit for this. Uh, these students coming to meetings every other week put in a lot more time than many of their peers who were earning similar credit for that. But it was really that support, that collaboration with the school, and we kept an active, you know, we would meet with the students here and there and just help them understand and let them ask questions, talk with each other. Uh, so the whole thing worked really well. In some cases, it actually changed students' perspectives on why boards care about things like design of buildings or signs. In one case, it changed a student's career track, and she decided she wanted to be Secretary of State someday, of the United States of America, not just of Vermont. Um, so it, it really had an impact on the students. The key in Vermont was that uh, since minors can't sign contracts, it wasn't felt that the students could have a vote on boards like planning or zoning where they were adjudicating people's legal rights. It didn't mean that they didn't have a practical vote, but legally they couldn't vote till they turned 18. And I'll leave you with this. The last piece that really proved how much the adults valued the students was at one point the planning commission had a vacancy on the board, and we had a student who hadn't been 18 whose term expired, and the Planning Commission wrote to the select board and said, we don't want you to advertise this position. We just want you to invite Megan to come back and be a full sitting voting member because now she's 18. So it really works, um, but the, as Laura said, it has to be valued, and if it's valued by the adults and there's support, everything else will fall into place. And like anything else, it needs a champion to help it continue. So when the town of Shelburne up here in northern Vermont thought about doing this a year or two ago, and they asked me to come speak to their select board, and I spoke very enthusiastically about it, they have embraced it in a similar fashion. And I hope that all of you out there can do similar things, getting uh, younger folks involved in civic affairs. It will change their lives. Mm. Thank you so much, Lee. Um, I, every every town that I have talked to or heard from that has uh, brought students on board has also just been amazed at how wonderfully it works. Um, and I, I love the whole idea of secession and thinking about that and um, and bringing on that one member as she turned 18. Yes. May I add one Was there more anything thing? else you wanted to add? I hope I didn't cut you off there when you no. just started talking about Melbourne. Thank you. One other key piece, the building on what Laura said, that sometimes youth don't get involved because no one asked. And this was an idea that the high school faculty had, where they sat down together to identify students they thought would be really good for this. And they tried to find kids who weren't the usual suspects, the kids who excel at everything, participate in everything. Um, and they sent letters home to the parents encouraging the parents to encourage their kids to apply for these positions. And that was a brilliant hmm. idea. And it worked really well because it wasn't coming from the school, really. It was coming from the parents saying, well, what do you think about this? And it was for trying to get kids involved, as I say, who weren't the ones always in the limelight. And it worked good. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Well, we're going to get to, uh, we hope everything is okay with Blair. We had a, a stellar young man who, who served on a couple of boards in uh, Cortez, Colorado. He did send us the answers to um, some of your questions, and we hope that um, everything is okay with him, and maybe he'll jump on board and we'll hear more from him. But at the moment, we will move on to our questions. So, Jason uh, from Montana, I believe this is uh, Jason from Polson, who is a remarkable guy who actually is really good at getting 
uh, youth involved in um, his co-op, but he asked if there are ideas for incentives for youth that want to help with community development. And in, in doing this, um, one of the things that uh, Blair, I'm sorry, our, um, Blair, our young man who just began as a, as a freshman at uh, Northern Arizona University, maybe he's busy with that, said scholarships, internships, food, and or a job opportunity. So those are some incentives that he thought of. Uh, Laura, do you have other thoughts about incentives uh, to get youth to be more involved in, in community um, leadership? Well, you know, Lee and I both chuckled, but it, it, food is not unreasonable. <laughs> um, I've, I've heard it said not, not unfrequently uh, that youth come for the food and they stay for the, the, the programming or the power or whatever it is. Um, I actually had a young man uh, tell me once that he told his friends to come because there was pizza. Um, and then, you know, all of his friends stayed and got engaged and stayed for a long time and, um, you know, stayed very engaged in the whole thing. So food is not unreasonable. Um, I do think that uh, one of the other pieces, and this, this does sometimes put a strain on uh, city budgets, and so this is something um, that, you know, needs to be weighed carefully, but um, stipends for young people who are participating, you know, um, we as uh, adults often do these kinds of activities as part of our jobs. Um, and so in some ways we get paid to do them. Um, and certainly, you know, elected officials in a lot of places, not everywhere certainly, but in a lot of places get paid to, you know, make the policies and decisions that they're making. But we often assume that young people don't need that kind of support. Um, and so I would, you know, I would encourage people to the extent that they can even grow towards this as a goal to think about um, providing uh, wages or stipends for young people who are participating in these kinds of boards and civic engagement opportunities. Great. Uh, thank you, Laura. And, and Lee, any, anything else come to mind in addition? Uh, just as I had mentioned, the school has a community service requirement and we made sure that this was going to at least fulfill that. We didn't provide food frequently enough, I'm sure, and uh, the, the pay was not great either, but at least we could help them satisfy a graduation requirement. Okay, great. I, sometimes I, think I was asked to, um, you know, write a recommendation for someone heading off ooh. to college, so there was that piece of the puzzle that I was always, you know, very happy to, to help out with because these kids really got engaged. Sure, and and that I would imagine is a very powerful thing for them to have on an application, on a college application. Certainly something unusual and different, yes. I think we covered a lot of, Jay from Kansas asks about suggestions for formal boards or other organizational structures uh, that create regular youth input. It sounds like, Lee, when you um, first suggested or, or had every town board embraced having two students on their uh, boards. I think in some places it's one student. Or um, is that still ongoing? Does that continue to live uh, well in Manchester and/or Shelburne? These communities that you that you know to um, to have at least one or two youth on all the boards. Um, in Shelburne, it is certainly continuing. It's much newer here. Um, I'm not sure how well it, if it's still continuing in Manchester. I tried to get that answer this morning, but didn't. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I don't say this because it's about me in any stretch, but like every project needs a champion and a motivator, and I'm not sure if I was able to pass that on as well as I would have liked. Right. But I'm hopeful that it's still going. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I know in, in Cortez, on the uh, there, there are certain boards like the Recreation Department and I think the Library Board that, that um, they're not having any problem keeping, keeping youth on board. Uh, Laura, a question from Robin in California, uh, is there, how do you approach Spanish-speaking communities? And I would imagine this is potentially true for any uh, varied communities within a community. Uh, your, right. your thoughts about uh, youth from, from different communities within a community? Right, right. And, and I think you're right, you're spot on that the answer to this question is very similar to the way I would answer um, a question about how do you engage any 
you know, particular um, subset of a community. Um, and that would really be uh, to um, pull in and use uh, what I would call trusted messengers um, for that community. So um, if there is, uh, you know, again, Speaking as I do from the city lens, um, if there are uh, if there are neighborhoods in your community that are um, a high proportion of Spanish-speaking population, and there's a city council member that represents that community, or there's a service provider that represents that community, talk to them about talking with the young people in that neighborhood um, and and helping to pull them in. So go with someone who's a trusted messenger for that uh, for that community that you're trying to target, whether it's um, you know geographic or a demographic or just sort of interests or not uh, sort of section of people. Great, thank you. I'm going to go on down to how uh, how do you implement, this is uh, from uh, British Columbia, so they're probably their structure is a little bit different, but I'm sure they're, they're interested in involving youth and, and uh, getting youth involved in leadership is just the same as ours. How do you implement the ideas generated from the youth given politics, the politics involved? In his case, uh, Tom says, we have great ideas generated although the practicality and alignment with the council's strategic priorities and financial plan do make it challenging to implement and execute. Youth engagement and their voice is so critical, more involvement is necessary, but I guess the, the question is, what if we can't follow through with some of their ideas? Lee, mm -hmm. do you want to address that first? Sure. Um, it's a really good question. I'd be glad to come out to British Columbia and advise in person. <laughs> um, but it's not unlike many other aspects of life where I think it's helpful and important to identify some short-term successes that are possible mm -hmm. that can be celebrated and build momentum, which then can also help provide context for how life works, that some of these things are longer range or longer term. Some things may not just be achievable in the short term. I mean, I used to always look at many of our ideas as planting seeds, and you have to wait for the right time and place for them to sprout. Some things you can do right away. Some things may need another lifetime. But if you can get some things done sooner than later to help show that tangible um, effect and benefit of participation, then you can build that momentum and help help understand the short and long-range context. Great. And, uh, Laura, I know you're also interested in answering this question. Yeah, I have a, a great example of how this works um, up in uh, Boston. A, another form of civic engagement that we see with young people that's uh, growing in popularity across the country is called participatory budgeting. Um, and I think there's going to be a link available um, on the uh, Google Doc to um, some more information about that. Um, but one of the things that they really prioritized there was making sure that the uh, the, the um, recommendations were going to actually be implemented. So participatory budgeting is an idea where, um, in this case, a city uh, took a portion of its budget um, and gave it to a group of young people to decide what to do with. Um, now, the key here was that um, uh, the young people, so there was a small group of young people who saw the whole process through. Um, they sought input from uh, all of the young people in the city through a voting process that they did, um, but there was a small group of young people who were trained and equipped to see this whole process through. And one of the things that they did, that the city did, was they brought in professional engineers, architects, urban planners, um, people, with, adults with the necessary expertise to decide uh, to help the young people work through, is this... Uh, an implementable idea, is it something we can make happen, and or how can we make this idea something that can be implementable? Um, and so the, the ideas that came out, um, some of them morphed a little bit, some of them morphed a lot, um, but they all ended up being things that could actually happen and could actually help the community. Um, and so this enabled the young people to really have a voice in, and in the, the way that the funding was spent for the city, but actually what was happening in their communities to improve them um, and made sure that those things were all implementable. So I think um, the sort of 
larger idea of that, a larger version of that, is those youth-adult partnerships that I was talking about, making sure that you have, you give young people uh, the tools, whether that's the knowledge um, or the experience or the connections and networking ability um, of people who uh, are equipped to do this um, and, and sort of know the, the the restrictions or requirements or whatever it is. Um, and so that's that's um, where I sort of tend to, to go with sort of making sure that things are really actionable. Ha happening. Well, and, and uh, Blair, um, you know, through, through an email, also mentioned uh, that you can kind of assure um, that the youth feel that they're really a part of things through voting privileges, he says, surveys, so at least their opinion is noted. Um, and meeting work, agendas and minutes, and maybe, you know, making sure that um, some agenda items that are important to youth get on, actually get on the agenda. So, terrific. I'm going to skip down to um, how much staff time is required on an ongoing basis to support a youth advisory council. Now, Brian didn't think much at all. He, um, he felt uh, fairly little as long as there's digital communication and uh, a monthly get-together. So uh, do you have a different idea about how how much staff time might be required to support a youth? Lee, you want to start that well, one? Sure. I think it will depend in part on the experience being brought to the table to begin with, but I sort of agree with Ryan. It, um, a monthly check-in is a great idea, and then, you know, I always tried to keep the students informed along the way as to what was coming up, how we were going to look at it. And we always tried to have these brief little, just uh, it's too formal a term, but continuing education about just how government works, how the pieces work, where does this board you're sitting on fit into the greater whole, and why does it make a difference. And But also making sure that we asked them for their thoughts, experience, questions, did they see better ways of doing business, if you will, as a town? Uh, what might they change? And again, when it came to redoing the town plan or reviewing development applications, uh, the students were not afraid to jump in with their opinions, and the adults were always willing to listen and embrace those. So that, that really made a difference. But I didn't think it took a huge amount of time, more at the outset. Uh, uh -huh. We actually we actually had a retreat with the first group of students, if you will, to really help build that base for them. We weren't able to do that on an ongoing basis, but it surely uh, brought that group together. And in fact, that group ended up coming with me to Minneapolis, and we did a presentation about this at the uh, APA National Conference. And hmm. the students did most of the presentation. It wasn't about me with them in a supporting role. It was quite the reverse. The goal was for them to give the presentation and I would support them however needed. So it really, you know, it really made a difference and it was a great experience for them to go to a national conference at that age too. I guess so. We had, we had a great uh, time. Do Gordon, you think, um, you know, people in towns wondering if this really is going to take a lot of staff time, your thoughts? Sorry. Um, you know, staff time is, is, a, is a lot of staff time required. Do, do you find in, in the work you do with cities there, I think I'm sure that some cities want youth involvement, but they're concerned that it might take up a lot of staff time. Do you think that's true? Yeah. I mean, it varies. Um, we definitely have some city where there's some cities uh, that are uh, really large um, and well-resourced cities, and those cities can have, you know, an, an individual staff person whose entire job as it is, it is, is youth engagement. Um, but more often what we see is there's um, a policy advisor or someone in the mayor's office um, or the city council member's office um, or just sort of the general uh, city administration who does this, you know, five or six hours a week maybe, if that. Um, it could be less than that. Um, and I certainly I agree with Lee that it does ebb and flow a bit. Um, so you might have, uh, you know, times that are very active and, and heavily uh, requiring staff time and then times, you know, a lot of councils um, that we know of hiatus in the summer um, as the kids are, you know, doing camps and travel and everything. And so um, oftentimes, you know, the, the person is prioritizing their time in other ways during that period. Sure. Well, that kind of takes me to another uh, uh, question about getting tips for dealing with the fact that youth 
do turnover, um, often yearly, as they move on, move out of town, go to college. Um, there often is very little extra funding, you know. So how do you keep the momentum going and sustain youth involvement when that group of people is, is really actually changing all the time? Lee, you want to start us off with that one? Sure, thanks. Um, that's where part of why we really wanted to have two students on each board across the board and have that sort of under an upperclassman approach to try to keep that momentum going and then hopefully through the ongoing support and working with them in those monthly check-ins to try to sustain that momentum. Um, and I think that helped us get off to a great start. Of course, it's an imperfect approach because you can't control who's going to apply and you can't just always appoint students in those shared classes. So in one board, you might lose both students. and another board, you might have them for two years. Um, but that was a big help for us in, in maintaining that momentum. And then again, a direct collaboration with a particular staff person at the high school. So we had a direct connection there. We worked together to try to help support the students however they wanted. Got it. And Laura, how do you, what are your tips for keeping momentum? Yeah, I would echo um, Lee's statement about having uh, a consistent adult be responsible for, for uh, having a key there because there will be turnover um, among the young people uh, as there should be. Um, I would also say, you know, a number of cities um, have lost youth councils um, during budget downturns. Um, you know, the stuff like youth engagement is the first stuff to get cut. Um, and so, and that, that uh, to the extent that that funding was a part of what made that youth council work, um, then the youth council just sort of withers. Um, and so I think that uh, both having sustained funding uh, to support the youth council and sustained dedication um, expressed in statute, expressed in charter, um, is something that can support sustainability there. Um, but also making what I think a succession plan is the wrong term, but making some kind of plan so that when economic times do get tough, as they do, you know, it, it always is a is an up and a down um, process, um, that there's some kind of backup plan um, for how we're going to keep this youth engagement going, even if we can't provide our stipends anymore, or even if we can't provide food every week. You know, what are we going to reach out to the local restaurants and try to get some in-kind donations of food? Um, you know, how are we going to how are we going to handle it if and when the budget gets cut? Mm. And this is, a, this is an interesting one uh, coming in from Patty in Connecticut. And by the way, thank you for all the questions that are still coming in. We will, we will get to those in a minute. Uh, what do you measure, how and how often, to determine the impact on the young adult, the family, the community, on programs and policies? Um, so, Laura, again, does the uh, National League of Cities do studies about this important work at all? Yeah, we. This is a great thing, and I, I think I want to um, take this question and and run with it in our work. But this is not something that we've collected from cities yet. I do think um, that there is likely some information about um, collecting uh, for measurable resources within the participatory budgeting uh, documents that I shared. Um, so I would encourage anybody um, hoping to do some more measurable stuff to take a look at that information. Um, but yeah, this is something that we absolutely um, want to uh, do more of. It's a great idea. Thank you, Patty. <laughs> okay. And uh, you've, you've had some, some ideas, but there's this whole question of where do you make connections with youth? You've both talked about schools, uh, Blair ads, libraries, uh, local organizations, and clubs. Uh, maybe you want to go deeper on some of those ideas, but where do you make those connections with youth to get them involved? And again, I'll, why don't I start with Laura um, on this one? Yeah, um, so definitely um, in addition to the ones that have been mentioned, I would also add friends. Um, peer networks is a great uh, way to recruit uh, new young people, reach out to new young people. I would add, um, you know, rec and parks departments, um, uh, after school programs, 
um, especially if there's an after-school program in your in your city or town that has something to do with um, advocacy or um, civic education or service, um, all of those kinds of things. Um, boys and girls clubs, um, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts often have, uh, you know, intentional focuses on service, and so that can also be a, an arena. Um, and then, you know, churches as well. A lot of times um, churches and communities have, again, sort of focuses on service, and so it's, it's a little bit easier to um, – help a young person turn that corner from a service focus to a, a civic engagement focus, um, then it might be to just sort of start with um, a sort of non-service focus. Um, so I would, you know, think about those kinds of things um, as sort of starting points. You know, don't expect the youth certainly to come to you fully ready to um, drive city policy but um, or drive local policy or, or, you know, any sort of legislation and things like that, but um, that you can build off of, of existing interests that they already have. Sure. I know in, um, in Maine, in Gardner, Maine, it was a Boys and Girls Club that did a whole survey of the roads and the safety and how kids, where they felt safe and where they didn't feel safe. And then mm -hmm. these, these uh, young people then presented to city council and indeed, some roads were then prioritized for uh, for work or changes um, that completely had to do with the uh, the study that that they did. So, that was, yeah, that was that's a great example. Thing. And I should just add, also, I mean, you know, we've been talking about diverse young people. I don't think any um, anyone seeking to engage young people should avoid, um, and in fact, they should definitely prioritize reaching out to the local juvenile justice agency. Um, and child welfare agency um, engage those young people who are experiencing foster care, who are experiencing the systems that we as a community um, uh, create to address the needs of young people. Um, we absolutely should be asking those young people to get engaged and to um, to lend their voices because their their voices are things we don't often our voices we don't often hear. Um, homeless service agencies, if you have one that um, is a um, runaway and homeless youth service agency would also be a good place to go. Terrific. I, I know that one of the initiatives that Blair was involved with was an organization that was created because of um, around substance abuse, and they shifted the whole focus to just positive engagement by youth. So they, hmm. they moved away from the focus on uh, uh, substance abuse and into in, uh, youth engagement, which is, which is pretty wonderful. Um, I, I'd like to uh, move on to another question that actually is, is um, somewhat related from Sasha in Jackson, New Hampshire. Uh, so it's similar. Um, so we'll, we'll see how Lee um, deals with this one. What criteria do you use to identify and define the groups of students you work with? And he adds, how do you reach hard-to-reach populations? So in other words, um, are there any other ways, Lee, that you might have helped towns identify the groups um, of students that you work with? Um, ours was, I mean, it was a small town, more limited audience all around. Mm -hmm. um, as I had mentioned, we, we relied initially and primarily on the school itself to help identify students. And then, as I think Laura began to mention, we tried to get the students to help identify peers who they thought would be great to invite into the program. And then we just advertised it through the school, just like the school advertised all sorts of other service opportunities where everybody had to do something. Um, but we, we didn't go much beyond that. Uh, what Laura mentioned is far more expansive in terms of reaching out or other opportunities to engage. Okay. Thank you. Uh, from um, uh, Alyssa asks, what are the overlaps between youth and young professionals? Are there ways that having young professionals in roles that can support youth involvement? And I love this, Laura, you were talking about youth-adult partnerships, and I can imagine that young professionals, since they're you know, much closer in age with many youth than, than some of us, uh, that's a great idea to really put youth and young professionals together. Do you know of um, any examples around that, those overlaps and or support systems? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a really um, 
fantastic uh, sort of direction to, to think about. Um, we are actually um, thinking about how we can support sort of the next generation of elected, of city elected officials, um, potentially by connecting young um, city elected officials. And we, we've done this um, at our conferences every year, and, and we're, we're considering where else we can go. But um, young elected officials and connecting them up with the youth delegates who are part of their, or the youth council members who come to our conferences every year. Um, and so I think that um, that's absolutely a, a great um, direction to head. And I think that the, uh, the participatory budgeting one certainly is another example where they connected um, young professionals uh, with the, the youth. Great, Laura. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. <laughs> And I guess actually, yeah, just that um, in terms of in terms of connections on boards, you know, a lot of times um, the, the civic engagement of young adults actually is growing. Um, you know, millennials as a generation are known for engaging more in um, civic action, civic work, um, and so uh, providing you might find connections there to really connect. Um, uh, supporting roles within your your existing um, boards and commissions and things. Absolutely, meaning meaningful work is important um, for that generation, which is fabulous. Uh, Angela from Washington State um, wants to know: Do you have suggestions for reaching college students? So their population is roughly 50% college students, uh, and certainly there's a turnover problem there, but. Um, can college students get engaged in in that local community, and and how might that work? Uh, I'm not sure if that would be true for, with your experience, Lisa. I'm going to start with Laura, but um, please follow up if you wish. So, Laura, any thoughts about college students' involvement in community? Yeah, we've definitely seen a number of colleges and universities really um, create opportunities, create structures, um, and push their students to get in, engaged in the local um, politics and work and service that happens in the community. Um, University of Chicago is a good example of this. Um, and I also have seen uh, all the way up actually into professional schools, you know, a number of med schools, law schools, dental schools engage their students in providing relevant service, and they also get practice, um, which is the benefit to the students, um, of, you know, into the, into the community that they're in. And the interesting piece there, of course, is that um, more often than not, your students in your local college and university are not from your local area. Um, and so getting them to tie in and, and, um, and connect to that community has a really significant benefit um, for everyone and, and can potentially help to connect those college and university students with that local area so that they stay there um, once they graduate. Yeah. And Lee, any experience with college students? Well, actually, yes, in a very different sort of context, but thinking about community service more broadly, Mm -hmm. uh, in, at Shelburne Volunteer Fire, we actually have a rolling series of college students who come through and serve with us for several years while they're here, and we embrace that as part of our overall mission of just training and mentoring and hope that perhaps wherever they land in their lives, they might serve in another volunteer fire service someone else. So a, a mission-critical aspect of community service, not in the traditional sense. Um, and it's been a great experience, again, all around. The adults embrace the students. The students really embrace the experience. They might be looking for it from a professional perspective or just it's their way of getting involved in community. So that's been a whole different part of uh, this youth in, youth in community experience. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to back up. I, I um, skipped Jerry from Pennsylvania's question about what are the most likely internet sites that youth use, and especially for ethnic or black youth. I was hoping that Blair would be here to uh, contribute to this, and we hope that anyone listening that has, a, has ideas about internet sites or other social media sites um, can add uh, their knowledge for this question. Please add your, your thoughts and comments. Uh, but Laura, do you have some thoughts about either social media or Internet sites that youth use where you might be able to um, 
uh, bring bring some to the table through that yeah. medium? Well, and I would say that whatever we say here today is going to change tomorrow, right? Because <laughs> um, they move so fast from one set to the other. Um, so sure. we've we've done some surveying with some youth mem uh, youth leaders from across the country about what works best for them in terms of engagement. None of them are on Twitter. Um, very few of them are on Facebook. Um, they are on Instagram. Uh, they're on Snapchat. Um, and then also. Uh, you know, very actively on uh, just group texts. So that's actually how I, what I use to communicate with the young people who help design our um, and lead our workshops at our conferences every year is a group text, um, mm -hmm. which is in some ways the, the easiest thing to do. You don't have to go to a, a website or anything. Um, and uh, so definitely, you know, I'd encourage um, people to look at Instagram and Snapchat um, and then uh, think about just other ways of connecting with the youth through their phones, which is going to be the, the key thing. It has to be phone-based. It can't be having to sit at a computer. Right, right. Really good good advice there. Any any follow-up thoughts, Lee? Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> okay. We have a question from Benzel in Colorado. He asks, who were the youth that came to the table? What were their demographics? Were there any minority, lower socioeconomic status? If those students were diverse, how much were you thinking about the language that is used around them, um, such as high risk versus high promise? Uh, interesting kind of complex uh, question. But Laura, some some thoughts um, for Benzel. Um, sorry to. So it's really about rephrase the question. You have, <laughs> this is my interpretation of of this right. question. Uh, he, I think it's a he, is is interested in the demographics. If there's if there's a real diverse, oh. you know, are you really right. bringing on a diverse representation? If you are. It, does the dialogue at the table change? Um, are you bringing mm -hmm. people that, that might have high risk and or high promise? And uh, does the, um, you know, it's interesting that he brings up what is the language that's used around them? Is it sensitive um, to them and their needs potentially? Yeah. Um, so there's lots to unpack there. Um, right. So <laughs> I agree. <laughs> So one piece is that if you are going to engage diverse young people, especially young people who may have experience in the juvenile system, uh, the child welfare system, and homelessness services, um, that you need to prepare everyone in the room, adults and young people included, to talk about and with uh, everyone respectfully about those issues. Um, you don't just leave it to chance that young people are going to use um, the right language or the right tone with people. Um, I do, so we just recently did a survey with um, youth councils across the country and saw that about half of them have, um, have some pretty significant diversity on their councils, and those um, often are the councils that are very intentional about it. Um, if you're not intentional about it, it often does not happen. Um, and so I think that um, where those councils are intentional about diversity and are achieving it, um, has also been councils where the um, the power structure of young people having a voice in the room is also very intentionally created. So um, youth are um, engaged in in very active, um, powerful ways with their voice. Um, and so I haven't done a sort of an assessment of of can you match the the quality of what's coming out with the diversity of the young people, but I think that's something that we could um, pursue to look at more. All right. Uh, an interesting question from Len in Connecticut. How do youth best reach out to older folks? In other words, um, have you been in a situation where a youth has reached out to you? Uh, uh, you know, I think we've been talking about how do older folks reach out to youth to get them involved. Is there, uh, Lee, in your experience, have you had a youth reach out to you and has really touched you? Um. In several cases I have, it's often been more one-on-one -on -one where somebody mm -hmm. was doing a research project and somehow they got linked up with me 
Um, in a few cases, it related to the whole youth program with on boards and how they could get involved in that. But it was very much um, their initiative or one of their faculty members' encouragement, shall we say, to reach out. And in okay. each case, of course, I tried to make it as helpful and valuable as possible for them. Um, yeah, sure. I thought that was so interesting that that kind of turned, turns the question around just, just a little bit. It does. Um, and, and Laura, I'm, I'm, we're, we're getting near the end, so um, we're going to come up to you, kind of a, a last question. But any, any thoughts about youth reaching out to older folks that you have? If there's, the a, if there's I, young, yeah, go ahead. Right. And the only thing I would mention, actually, um, this isn't quite the question, um, but uh, we've seen uh, a number of young people running for office lately. Um, and you know, here I'm talking about um, over 18-year-olds typically, but still under the age of 25, and in, in some cases under the age of 21. Um, and some uh, cities and towns um, in across the country, including Ithaca, New York, and Indian Head, Maryland, um, have explicitly lowered their age at which they can um, someone can hold office, and so people and young people have really stepped up and to the plate and said, "I would like to. I want to do that." Um, and so we've seen an increase in uh, in young people holding office, um, or at least running for office too, um, even if they're not successful uh, in, across the country in a number of places. Hmm. And even mayors of of uh, some towns, we there are some really young mayors. It's really fantastic. Yeah, the mayor of Indian Head, North Carolina, um, Maryland, is he was elected when he was 20. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'd like to pose to both of you, you know, just kind of what are what would be first steps that you might take towards authentic, engaged unit youth leadership. So we have, uh, we've been talking about this for the last hour, but let's say there's a town that really hasn't moved in this direction, really interested in doing it. What are some, a first step or two that you would take um, towards really an authentic and engaged youth leadership? Uh, Lee, do you want to start? You've certainly um, helped two towns uh, take those steps. Sure. I think as I, as I said earlier, in many in every case, a project needs a champion from inside the system to help launch something successfully. So if it's a community that hasn't really thought about it or put much effort into it, it might take some direct outreach, whether through the schools or through some youth entity, to create some interest and support and hopefully get the students to take the lead. Uh, in, in Shelburne's case, it was a town manager who thought it would be a great idea, did some research on the Internet, and found his way to the Orton page and learned about our project <laughs> in Manchester. And so it was an amusing circle there. Um, but in each case, there was a champion. In our case, it started with the wind turbine project, reaching out to the students who turned out to have some inherent innate interest themselves. In Shelburne, it was the town manager helping to launch it, in each case, there was then some momentum by the time we got to the governing bodies, who in both towns, I was thrilled, were very happy to engage the process. If there's skepticism at that level, it may take a little time to, again, plant those seeds and help uh, let something sprout for a little while. Not everybody's ready for whatever the new idea of the moment may be. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's a great suggestion. I know in Cortez they were having a lot of uh, tagging and graffiti issues, and the youth suggested that the skate park be turned over to artists, and it was um, it was a great idea, and it led to more participation and uh, their having young people um, always engaged in their recreation department, and uh, the fact that youth were able to deal with that skate park. Uh, also lessened by a significant amount the amount of tagging that went on through the rest of the town. And anyway, um, uh, back to Laura. What steps uh, do you usually offer as tips to uh, work towards authentic, engaged uh yeah, it sounds like it sounds very similar to actually what happened um, in both the examples that you guys just talked about, which is um, convene a, a 
group of young people, talk to a group of young people um, about um, their needs and wants in the community. Um, and the other piece that I would mention is to figure out what's already happening in your community. Um, there may already be uh, different points uh, where uh, – service providers or organizations or schools are getting young people involved. You know, you may have an active um, youth component in the local school board. Um, you may have uh, an organization that's already training youth to do, um, you know, legislative advocacy at the state level. Um, and so assess what's already going on in your community, and then that may already provide a, you know, a good um, trampoline for you to jump off uh, of into a, a deeper civic engagement in your city or town. Okay. Thank you um, both very much. I'd like to thank um, both uh, our guests and everybody who called in for this terrific call and for caring so much about youth in um, our towns. Thank you, Laura Furr, for your national perspective and all your great tips. Thank you. And Lee Crone, thank you for joining us kind of at the last minute and for sharing your enthusiasm and knowledge. Well, thank you, and thanks to everyone for their interest. Hopefully we've just planted lots of seeds today. And hope Larry's right, okay. <laughs> thank you very much. And many thanks to all of you across the U.S. and beyond for joining us today. We hope that you'll also take a minute to fill out our brief survey to help us continue to improve our call series. Look for links to our survey under announcements. We'll be, taking, we'll be talking about civil discourse and bridging divides on September 28th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's the same time as today's call. Stay tuned for more on that dynamic topic featuring Carolyn Lukensmeyer, the Executive Director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse. I'd like to thank the Orton Family Foundation also who make these sessions possible. Look for a recording of this call that will be sent out to all registrants and posted on our website, www.orton.org in the next few days. For the Orton Family Foundation, I'm Fran Stoddard. Have a great day, and thanks again for joining us. Bye-bye.